Chapter Six of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: A Social Problem. Believe in it, Callie. They were having a family council in the evening. The wife had her bit of sewing, in which she was now and then taking stitches while she talked, and the husband, as he asked the question, arose and walked to the window to throw out the stump of a cigar smoke from which still curled about the pretty parlor. She did not believe in that, at least. It had been a surprise to her, and a pain, when she had discovered, after their marriage, that her husband occasionally smoked a good cigar. That was his way of putting it. She had not known quite what to say, so had said little, until a day or two after the serious compact had been entered into, to consecrate their tenth to the Lord then she had, half playfully, but with an earnest undertone of meaning, said to him, "'By the way, Warren, we have made no allowance for cigars in our schedule of expenses, and yet I smell the odor of smoke. How is that?' And he had flushed, and there had flashed over his face and manner a slight touch of haughtiness, gone the next instant, as he explained, "'I saved the amount from the sum allotted for my dinner, Callie,' I found I would rather have the cigar and go without the cup of coffee I am in the habit of taking. Don't be afraid, dear. I shall not break our compact for the sake of personal indulgence. Then she hastened to explain that she feared no such thing, and tried to impress him with the belief that the coffee would be so much better for him than the cigar, and he had laughed and assured her he was in perfect health and needed no coffee for a stimulant that the cigar was a mere habit, company, sort of. He cared comparatively little for it, and should never be tempted to inveterate smoking. And the wife had believed that she must drop the subject and bide her time. None the less did she disapprove of the cigar. It was rarely that it found its way into her parlor, but the fact that it appeared there at all showed how entirely ignorant her husband was of her true feeling on the subject. Meantime, she answered his question. "'Why, yes, I believe in social life. Perhaps those things are not as well managed as they might be, but I have always recognized the importance of the social element in society. Indeed, it has seemed to me that we were not, as Christians, doing half that we might in that direction.' "'Do you suppose Christian culture is at the bottom of Mrs. Bacon's social scheme?' her husband asked with laughing eyes. Still, he added, answering himself, we have no right to pick flaws in her motives. Especially when they are plain enough without picking, Mrs. Spafford answered, and then these two, who understood each other so well, and were tempted to say what they would not allow others to say, laughed at their own thoughts. The fact was that Mrs. Bacon, despite the fatigues following upon her vigorous efforts to get the little church out of debt, and which, the evening proving rainy, had resulted in a net profit of only twenty dollars, had yet rallied her forces and resolved to give an evening entertainment, a select affair attended by some of her downtown friends. To this entertainment, strangely enough, Mr. and Mrs. Spafford were invited. They had exclaimed over the invitation in genuine surprise, but had refrained from discussing the reasons for it. They each, however, in reviewing the matter, 
had arrived at the same conclusion, as was evidenced by the husband saying gravely, I tell you what it is, Callie, it is a lucky thing for us that General Ward Howell happens to be our uncle. Only it will necessitate a new necktie, just as sure as you live. And his wife had flushed over Mrs. Bacon's motives, and laughed, and then answered the reference to dress. Now you have touched upon a bewildering point. It doesn't trouble me much just now, because fortunately I am a bride, and have a toilet that will do very well. But suppose that these entertainments continue, and we continue to be General Ward Howell's niece, it will involve expense, and I don't see how we are to meet expenses of that sort. I don't either. In my opinion, we shall have to remain by our own vine and fig tree, finding our pleasure in domestic life. That is the reason why I asked you in a general way whether you believed in it. Not exactly in social life, but in our ability to enter into it. Ought we not to commence as we can continue? I think so, and for that very reason we should arrange for some social gatherings. We cannot sit down like hermits at home, at least I suppose we have no right to. We must mingle with other people, and get and give. These phases of life are opportunities, not accidents, I suppose. Mr. Spafford surveyed his wife thoughtfully for a moment, and then answered, Upon my word, Callie, I believe you have a different way of looking at every object under the sun from that of common mortals. Who, for instance, ever dreamed of finding a duty in party-going? Save the class of people to whom Mrs. Bacon seems to belong, who make it a sort of affectation of the term, thrusting it in people's faces when it means nothing. But I thought that Christian people looked upon these things as bores at the best, that must be endured occasionally, for the sake of courtesy or custom, or something of that sort. I don't believe I look upon the ordinary party, with its dancing and card-playing, as an institution which a Christian is ever called upon even to endure. But I do look upon social gatherings as so many traps that may be set for the feet of the young and gay, good honest traps, I mean, by means of which they may be drawn in, from time to time, to the family of Christ. I regret to tell you that Mr. Spafford answered this remark with a whistle. How many people do you suppose go to parties, or to social gatherings of any sort, with that end in view? He asked, stopping in the midst of Hail Columbia. I am a Yankee, Warren, and so may answer your question by asking another. Do you think that Christians, whose rule of life reads, Whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God? have any right to go to social gatherings, or anywhere else, separated from this end? Witness declines to answer, said Warren, with becoming gravity. Then, well now, Callie, suppose for the sake of argument, that I am convinced, what are we going to do about this cravat and glove business? Those two articles will hardly do as illustrations, either. It will come to coats and dresses soon, because, you see, I know enough about the question to understand that the sort of dress which will do for ordinary occasions will not do for these social gatherings. I don't believe that, she said, shaking her head earnestly. I believe, Warren, that Christian people of today ought to enter the lists 
resolved to battle against this foe to social life not only, but Christian life. I think the great trouble in our churches, or no, I won't put it that way, one of the troubles, is too much dressing. Why, look at it in this neighborhood. There are ever so many nice, respectable-looking people whom we don't see in church. I asked Mrs. Bacon about that Burns family only last evening, and she said, well, the fact is, I suspect they haven't clothes that they think suitable to wear to church. Why, I said, I met Mrs. Burns and her daughter on the street yesterday, and they were very neatly clothed. Oh, neatly, yes, of course, they are quite respectable people, but they are, like a great many others, poor and proud. If they can't dress as well as the rest, they won't come to church at all, such sinful pride. That is the way she finished the sentence, but it set me to thinking afresh. No doubt it is sinful pride, but I came home with this verse running continually through my mind. Woe unto him by whom the offence cometh. Warren, I would like to go to this gathering of Mrs. Bacon's, and to every other gathering which we decide to attend, dressed as simply as is in keeping with my ideas of neatness and propriety. It will take a good deal of moral courage you will find, little woman. Are you equal to the buzz of tongues that will tell in confidence to their intimates? Don't you think that Mrs. Spafford wore a calico dress to the social last night? They must be dreadfully poor. I believe I am equal to it, she answered him, laughing, especially since General Ward Howell is my uncle. But I don't intend to wear my calico, that would excite unnecessary remark. I have a nice fresh muslin, prettily made, and as simple and inexpensive as it well can be, that I fancy will be just the thing. Then you won't even wear your black silk? Too warm. These June days seem as warm to me as any that I remember in August. Besides, you foolish man, when shall I be able to have another black silk on six hundred a year? I must make this last for state occasions, until I am a grandmother at least. Isn't Mrs. Bacon's tea party a state occasion? I don't mean to make it such. She assured me that it was a quiet little affair, just a few friends to spend an hour or two, not a party at all. I am going to take her at her word and dress accordingly. I'll venture you fifty cents that you will be the only lady there out of rich silks and real lace and things. Very well. I haven't real lace and things to appear in, and don't expect to have, and I am entirely willing to appear in what I have. But what about your necktie? Oh, I'll appear in the same old one. It will match your muslin dress. Will you dispose of the glove question in an equally economical manner? I never could see the necessity of putting on gloves in order to spend a social evening with one's friends. I don't mean to wear any gloves. All right. That relieves me of the awful necessity for encasing my hands in them, to say nothing of the joy of escaping from buying them. But, my dear little woman, this matter had better be looked at from all sides, now that we have it up. What do you think of the propriety of accepting these invitations from various sources, and never being able to return them? We can't give parties, you know, even such quiet and inexpensive affairs as your friend Mrs. Bacon proposes. This last with a gleam of mischief in his handsome eyes. 
what about enjoying the hospitality of other homes and closing our own? I don't want to close our own, Warren, do you? Of course we can't give parties. At present we can't even have a dozen friends at once to take tea with us, because, with a gay little laugh, we haven't cups enough. But what is to hinder our inviting first Mr. and Mrs. this one, and then Mr. and Mrs. that one, to take a dish of tea with us? We have good bread and butter, and in fruit time that is as inexpensive as anything. And I can even make some of the all-important cake occasionally. And I think our friends would enjoy meeting us in that way ever so much. Callie, my child, do you really mean that you ever contemplate inviting Mr. and Mrs. Bacon, for instance, to take some bread and butter and tea with us? Why not? If, on acquaintance, it seems to me that she would enjoy such a quiet little bit of home life as that, and we would enjoy giving it to her, why should we not? The idea that obtains in some circles of being indebted to this or that one for hospitality was always a distasteful one to me, making a sort of barter of social life. I want to entertain my friends as often as I can, and as well as I consistently can. If they entertain me oftener, and in a better manner, why, I shall enjoy it gratefully, without keeping account of the difference in expense. Mr. Spafford seemed to feel that there was no way of expressing his feelings better than by resorting to Hail Columbia again, and finishing the bar he was whistling, he closed it with a laugh, and went to fasten the kitchen door preparatory to ascending the stairs for the night. Warren, his wife said to him, rising and going forward to meet him as he returned, you have laughed and whistled, but I wonder if you know that you haven't expressed an opinion on the entire subject. Won't you tell me what you think? Do you believe all this is as visionary as your whistling would seem to indicate? Don't you think that we, as Christians, and as poor Christians, can have our place in social life, and meet our friends, and contribute our share to their enjoyment, and get their help? He was a tall man, and she was a little woman. He had a way of putting his hands on her shoulders, and looking down into her eyes. He placed his hands so at this time, and in the handsome brown eyes, mischievous eyes, dancing half the time with a sense of the irresistibly comical, there was more feeling expressed than that of mere amusement now. Callie, he said, dear little wifey, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe in you heartily, and in your religion. Some of your ideas are new to me, and I won't deny our startling. I am by no means sure that you can bring other people, any other people, mind you, to your way of thinking. I have an idea that when you assail the customs of society, as regards dress and entertainments, you touch very tender points, come close to hearts, women's hearts anyhow. But I like the fun of trying it. I'm with you heartily. There is a dash of the romantic about me that makes anything like a sensation especially agreeable. We will go to this quiet little gathering in muslin and gloveless and do our best." As they went up the stairs, they severally thought this. I wonder, deep down in the wife's heart, where there quivered a little sigh, if Warren really means that all these things are simply funny to him, and he sees no underlying principle in them, 
nor cares for them except as they suggest a sensation. He on his part, grand little woman, trying to make believe that her struggle to hold her own in the society in which she is calculated to shine is a matter of principle, and has nothing to do with her having married a poor clerk. I would like to shield her alike from the pity and the sneers of the miserable world. But, since she is too brave to be shielded, we will make believe it is all a play, and push through. And he actually thought it was all because they were poor. Mrs. Bacon's little gathering was the subject of talk and thought in other homes, and that other subject, the attire in which to appear, also claimed attention. In Mrs. Evans's home the whole matter was productive of pain. She, too, was a bride of not many months' standing, and the one rich silk, which, poor as she was, had seemed to her an indispensable accessory of marriage, would still serve her as an elegant dress. She thought of it with complacency, and brought it forth, but when was a dress laid aside by even a moderately fashionable lady for a few months' time, without there occurring changes that involved letting out this loop, and puckering in that? Mrs. Evans's dress proved no exception. It had to go to a fashionable dressmaker's to be puckered. Its mistress knew no other. She had spent her year of mourning at an uncle's house, and had been married from that home. The uncle, with an expensive family to support, had done for her what he could, namely, given her an elegant wedding, and as showy an outfit as he had dared, and the benefit of his elegant wife's and grown-up daughter's expensive advice and habits. So by nature and education, Mrs. Dane Evans knew exactly how the silk should look in order to be elegant, and exactly where to go to have the elegance added. Also, she knew and thought of it with bitterness, just what the bill would be likely to read, especially when it became necessary, according to the decrees of fashion, to have the arrangement of the lace trimming altered, and to add a yard and a half more to the original pattern. Several other very little additions became necessary to the eyes of the artist, and when the reconstructed fabric came home, its owner surveyed it with a curious mixture of satisfaction and dismay. If only the bill for the same did not lie on the bed beside it. How could it cost so ruinously just to make a few little alterations in a dress? Then came the question of gloves. Mrs. Evans no more thought of going to the little gathering with ungloved hands than she thought of going in blue and white muslin, and her tormentor, Jenny West, having completed her visit elsewhere, was by her side to exclaim as to what could and could not be tolerated altogether taking into consideration the discomfort of Dane, the new wrinkles that would undoubtedly gather about his forehead, the gloom that would be a family guest for weeks, perhaps, as the result of those bills, and the memory of the blush of shame that arose to her cheek when she asked the dressmaker to be kind enough to wait a few weeks till another installment of her husband's salary was due, Mrs. Evans attired herself for the gathering with a heavy heart, she was not comforted by the fact that Dane pronounced the whole affair a confounded nuisance, and refused to get any new gloves for himself until two hours before the time for starting. To be sure he bought them at last. 
Unfortunately, Dane Evans was one who, like his wife, recognized the necessity of doing as other people did. End of chapter 6